Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Hi, this is Dennis Dunaway of Alice Cooper. You're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, diggers. Welcome to another episode of Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Christian Swain here. I am the Rock and Roll Archaeologist, and I am behind the mic in San Francisco today. In Deeper Digs, we go a little further, dig a little deeper into rock and roll music, culture, and technology. Interviews, special topics, field trips, and more. It is the companion show to the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast, our episodic overview of rock history. If you haven't uh, recently heard, episode 16, East of Eden, all about the San Francisco music scene, is now out and available. All of our podcasts, and we have a nice little network going on, are available at rockandrollarchaeology.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hey, just a bit of news. We are now available on Spotify. In fact, you can find us on about 40 different distribution networks these days. And you can support us via Patreon with a monthly donation or just make a one-time donation if you'd like. Cancel at the end of the month. Finally, this is the one that matters to most of us here. If you enjoy what we do, then please tell a friend about Rock and Roll Archaeology. All right. Thank you. Business handled. We are good. Let's do it.
Today, we are talking with Adrian Hart, author of Small Victories, the true story of faith no more. Sometimes regarded by critics as unsung heroes in the rock and roll pantheon, or perhaps less so, and even a little forgotten with time by others. Um, But to me, especially after reading the book and being reminded of their contributions of their time, Faith No More should be thought as serious influencers for the rock bands that came after them, and much more than just making a bit of a splash at just the right time and on a certain music video network. Uh, More than a little fish flopping around on the ground floor of the grunge genre. And that is Adrian's big point in the book. Coming out of the eclectic music scene of 1980s San Francisco, they incorporated numerous musical styles to create their own unique sound. It's funk, rap, metal, thrash, prog, lounge jazz, and more. Yeah, all of it. I think it's fair to say nobody sounds like them. They are unique, singular. I know I loved them back in the day and wanted to sound like them, but uh, got outvoted in my bands. Uh, To me, they pointed the way out of the hair metal scene in L.A., along with the Chili's and a few others, but I digress. Adrian had access to most everyone that had been in and around the band, including drummer Mike Borden, bassist Billy Gould, keyboardist Roddy Bottom, and even original vocalist Chuck Mosley before he passed in 2017. Unfortunately, he didn't get to speak to vocalist Mike Patton or a guitarist from their most popular era, Jim Martin, but with shoe leather research, uh, instead, uh, the work is still solid. Adrian is very serious about Faith No More. He started a website dedicated to the band in 2009 when there was no band. (laughs) They had broken up in 1998 and didn't reform until that year. He has the full endorsement of the band. Uh, I know I ran into Mike Borden and Billy Gould at a recent show, and they had nothing but praise for the book. This is a deep dive into Faith No More's history and at the same time a lawyerly case laid down as to their continued influence and how maybe the rock and roll intelligentsia need to take a second look at how significant their contributions were to the whole rock and roll story. But uh, let's hear Adrian lay out his case for you, uh, the jury, to decide. Diggers, I give you Adrian Hart. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Adrian Hart. How are you doing today? I'm great, yeah. Very good. Very good. Love to have you on the on the show and uh, talk about small victories, the true story of Faith No More. So, okay, first question, why write a book about a band that, uh, you know, owns a very small corner of rock history? Yeah, I think that's possibly why I decided to, to, to write about it. I think, 
you know, I, I'm a fan, obviously, and I think that comes across in the book. Um, hopefully, not too much, but <laughs> I think it's, I think it's uh, difficult. Journalistic to... fan, uh, sure. You know, yeah. like us, the same thing. You know, do exactly. the research, it's... but uh, you know, there's the love and passion. That's obvious. Yeah, I think you have to be. There has to be a certain amount of subjectivity in, in, in music writing, and you know, you can't avoid it. But um, yeah, yeah, my feeling was that. You know, Fate No More were never, you know, part of the, the rock and roll canon. You know, they've never been, they're eligible for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They've, they've never really been up for those discussions. They're, and, you know, I felt maybe they were a little bit neglected, definitely in the US, more so maybe than in the UK and Europe and elsewhere in the world. Probably a bit neglected, you know, even in recent weeks, I think there was international one-hit wonder day and you know again it came up that fight them over that one-hit wonder band epic epic, epic I'm sure. yeah. Yeah, so yeah right 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 and oh that, that was the case in 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 europe or was that also no i think well i saw it on twitter there was a hashtag oh, of that american people thing, yeah. mostly american people mentioning it you know, yeah 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 up. yeah and that's the thing uh, you know faith no more has a has a has a moment a, a kind of a, a big moment especially on mtv uh, yeah. and, and then, you know, uh, they kind of uh, begin to uh, fall further into obscurity as the as the music shifted. And I, I think it's fair to say, looking back on them, uh, and, you know, your book has gotten me to kind of look back on them. They yeah. are far more influential than maybe I, you know, first thought. Uh, and don't get me wrong. I, I was there at that at that at that time in L.A. in the mm. L.A. music scene. And um, they were something to, to pay attention to. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we get into it. But So let's get a little background on yourself. Uh, yeah. you know, what's the Adrian Hart superhero origin story? The origin story is, well, I'm, uh, I might live in Switzerland now, but I'm, uh, I'm Irish. And I've uh, I lived in Ireland until I was 23. Um, I, I wanted to be a, I've always wanted to be a journalist or a writer. So I, I started working for my local newspaper back in uh, Back in Ireland, and I think no, where around in a place called Monaghan, it's kind of on the border, just south of the border with Northern Ireland. Okay. Um, and yeah, I studied history and politics at university, and then I, I wanted to be a journalist, so I worked for the local paper for a little bit. I was, you know, more interested in writing about sport than music at that time. I don't know why, but the opportunity was there. Um, yeah, or, you're, or sport. You're, you're a big football guy, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, football as opposed to gridiron, but yeah, um, I don't mind calling it soccer because soccer is a universal, universal word. Yeah, but I work for UEFA, which is the European uh, football organization um, that organizes, you know, the big competition organizes the UEFA Champions League. So I work in their communications department. Um, uh, yeah, I moved to Switzerland when I was 23. I got the opportunity to to, to join UEFA when they were just setting up a, a website, and I got in. I got in there early, and I've uh, had, a, had a brief spell working in London for the BBC and the Guardian um, but I've been back in Switzerland almost almost yeah about 18 19 years now so uh, I'm pretty settled here so you you uh, you you are a, a bit of a historian and journalist uh, by trade you have some journalistic uh, bona fides here uh, and uh, uh, you decide that uh, you I think it starts off with a, a website right uh, yes you yeah. uh, you well, but before that, how, how did you first come to hear Faith No More? How did I first come? Yeah, I've been asking myself this question for. I, I I think the first song I heard was either Epic or From Out of Nowhere. So it was that era. It was the you know nineteen eighty nine era, the real thing. Yeah. Mike Patton's first album. Yeah. When they when they were becoming big everywhere and they were being played regularly on MTV and uh, regularly featured in kind of the heavy metal 
magazines that I would read, like Kerrang! and Metal Hammer, which used to get over in, in Europe. So you kind, of, you kind of grew up a bit of a metalhead. I did, yeah, yeah. I hung out with some older friends, and they were into it. I think in rural Ireland, that was at the time in the in the eighties and nineties. I think in rural Ireland, that was you know that's what teenage you know boys and boys mostly, but also girls listen to. You know, they listen yeah. to to metal. They listen to maybe it started off with Def Leppard and some of the you know hair metal bands in the eighties, and then it was then it became Guns N' Roses, Fate and One, Metallica. I think were the, the three big groups for for my group of friends. Well, it sounds like maybe rural it, Ireland and suburban America have a lot in common. Yeah, I think so. It's funny, but the the, the 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 in the larger towns in Ireland, I think they were maybe slightly more sophisticated. Maybe and they were more likely to be into Manchester or some of the more interesting UK bands, yeah, like the, the Cure, yeah, for instance. Yeah. There was a, in, in my school, there was a division between you know the the rural metal heads and then a kind of the, the slightly maybe cooler, I don't know, uh, cure heads. <laughs> the, as elitist, the elitist yeah. new waivers, huh? <laughs> we all wore black anyway. <laughs> right, which right. tribe you were in. Yeah. It's just what kind of eyeshadow you wore. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right, so uh, why, why did you fall so deep into the rabbit hole? Oh, I, you know, I liked that there were, there were metal, there was a guitar edge, but there was something more to them, you know. There was a, there was a bit more depth and a bit more substance and a lot more to delve into, you know. And the, you know, the real thing got me hooked. Uh, it wasn't really, you, it wasn't you really recognize work. that right away? Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah I think yeah. it got them. I mean, they were pretty much, you know, pretty soon they were a favorite. And I think that I think that was really copper fastened in, in 92 when I, a, I saw them live for the first time. And they played Slane Castle. Uh, oh, opening for Guns N' Roses, right? Opening for Guns N' Roses, yeah. And that was just around the time. I think it was a few weeks before Angel Dust came out. And, you know, they had a kind of different look and, a, you know, a different sound. And they come out and they didn't, no holds barred. They were playing for a Guns N' Roses crowd, but they didn't come out and play Epic or from out of nowhere or anything straight away. They launched straight into Caffeine, you know, and Patton was, you know, with his hair cut shorter, was launching himself into the, into the stage. And it was like, you know, it was captivating. And to kind of, you know, I, I, I was then and I still am, uh, you know, a Guns N' Roses fan, but they kind of, for me, the blue Guns N' Roses away that day. And, and then Angel Lust came out, and you know that's still my favorite album. And I, I just, it did, you know, it did even more stuff that you could delve into. You could listen to, you know, you listen to a song like Malpractice or Caffeine, and you know, every time you listen to it, you, you hear something new. I know. Depth, were doing, yeah, yeah. yeah, they were doing interesting things with, you know, music concrete and sampling and different sounds that I hadn't been exposed to at all at that stage. And, and you know, and I'm still. It was still rocked hard, you know, for her, you know, a teenage guy. It still had something like that, you know. And, and then I saw them again that year in in the Point Theatre in Dublin, where they were supported by L7 as a standalone gig. And, yeah, it was just, they were, they blew me away, you know, again. And they were, they were, they, they were then and they have been since my favourite band. Yeah, I, I, I re obviously, I remember Epic coming out. I mean, it was all over MTV. You couldn't miss yeah. it. Uh, and, and, you know, I was in the L.A. music scene at the at the time. And, uh, you know, it was definitely a, a bit of a sea change. There, there was something different going on in the, you know, the world of, of you know, power ballads and hair metal uh, yeah. bands uh, that I was surrounded by. Really, really uh, like that. I immediately didn't put together that that was also the band that had uh, recorded uh, We Care A Lot a couple of years yeah. before. Uh, obviously, and we'll get into that on reasons why, uh, sure. different singers and so on and so forth. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think we're beginning to hit on some of the things that make them special. And that is, you know, a, a, a huge palette 
uh, of influences that uh, they uh, pulled from uh, to to put into to their music here. So now um, you 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 before you you wrote the book as as we said real quickly here you you started a website called um, yeah. I think it's FMN uh, 2.0 right Yeah exactly yeah and and that can be found at I, I think it's Faith No More uh, NewFaithNoMore.com uh, NewFaithNoMore.com yeah. right right yeah. right so how, when did you do that? The, you know, they started in, you know, they announced in early 2000, March 2009, April 2009. Oh, because the band kind of was getting back. Yeah, back. exactly. And I said, okay, you know, it was something I wanted to do. I wanted to do a little bit more writing. I wanted to, you know, check out, you know, how, how, how best to blog because, mm-hmm. you know, I was interested to, you know, let's set up my own blog. And, and you know, very soon, actually, within a within a, a matter of weeks and months, the, the site became popular and and it became popular with the band themselves because the band had decided um, when they got back together that they weren't going to do any major uh, press interviews um, on, on the first tour or about the first tour. And they were quite happy for me to kind of communicate kind of for them in, in a way, giving the, making, you know, following up uh, tour announcements and, uh, and yeah, and communicating indirectly to the fans on on their behalf, and I you know I got to, I got to know the band pretty soon. Um, you know, uh, I got contacted Bill Gould through Facebook. We you know we we met up then later that year at a at a, at a show in Prague. I got to know the guys, and they 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 loved the site, and the, you know it became a very very popular site. You know, there was I think when the band played their uh, comeback show, the first comeback show in in June two thousand and nine at the Brixton Academy. Uh, this was this was before Twitter, before Facebook really became, you know, the the yeah, the, 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 the live right. yeah, and the live tools there are now. So there was, you know, people all around the world were wondering what what was the show was going to be like, and there was no, you know, there was no one broadcasting it or you know, uh, webcasting it or anything like that. So, so I, I was, you know, I was I was sitting there with, a, with my mobile phone, updating the site at the time and seeing, you know, what the what the set list was and what they were wearing and what they looked like and who was there. And, you know, there was like 10,000 people following that um, uh, concurrently that, that day. So it was like, wow, this is this is a big deal. You know, people are in, people are supremely interested in this band still, you know, even more so maybe than before. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I can see as time went on and uh, you get further away from the moment of creation, um, they do. They become a, a little bit more interesting, uh, mm. you know, separated out from what, what was happening uh, at the at the moment. And, you know, we'll get into talking about, you know, uh, career moves versus, you know, uh, passion and desire uh, and how they may have, uh, you know... Uh, gone down one road uh, at the expense of another uh, and you know sometimes that ad happens but uh, okay so so tell us about so you start this website you uh, you know I've gathered a, a, a fair amount of uh, fans I, I would assume, assume that's on both sides of the Atlantic yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> the band itself now uh, uh, has expressed uh, an interest in you continuing uh, uh, doing this uh, on yeah. their behalf and you've become friendly with them so yeah. I, I, I guess it does stand to reason that uh, the next step would be um, Hey, uh, maybe somebody should write the definitive uh, biography of the band, huh? Yeah, yeah. It took a while. It took a while for for, for, for that penny to drop. But yeah, as you said, it did did sound the reason. I think I think it wasn't until 2015 when the band came back with their the comeback album, album. Right, right? Yeah, Soul Invictus. Yeah. That that kind of underlined to me that a you know there are 
even more popular than maybe I, I anticipated. There's, there's a lot more still in Fate and More. There's a lot more interest in the band still. The band has still something to say. Um, and maybe I'd taken the site maybe as far as I could go. And because, uh, like a lot of bloggers, you, know, you find that a lot of people who were maybe on the site before are actually more interested. It's easier for them to get information through Twitter and Facebook now. So they're like, okay. And I want to write, you know, uh, I was doing less writing in my day job. So I was like, okay, I had a pa- have a passion for writing and I, and I need to, to write something. And then, yeah, the, the, I think the itch started around then. And then it was a, a question of putting a proposal together and trying to get publishers on board and trying to get the band uh, on board as well. Yes, it's getting a lot of very good press uh, and now appears to be the definitive history of this semi-obscure but highly influential band. So tell us about researching and writing the book. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of research, basically. Uh, um, you know, as I said, I studied history, so I, I do like... I, like, I do like. Yeah, it is 566 uh, pages long. Yeah, yeah, I do, I, I do like, you know, uh, digging deep digging deep in the bands to, uh, as a title of, uh, of this show. So um, I think I started off, yeah, I, I had, a, you know, put together three paragraphs and an outline, to, or three, sorry, three chapters and an outline to kind of get a, to, to get a, a publisher interested right. and to get the, the band, the, get the band on site. Um, so I, I concentrated mostly on the early days because it's, you know, it's kind of... The origin, yeah. The origin story, yeah, yeah, and, uh, you know, okay, it's maybe a cliche in rock biographies, but sometimes it, it, it's, it's the origin stories are much more interesting because people don't really know them, and I think there was a lot of maybe misinformation and rumor uh, about Fate No More's origin story, and I thought it was also there's, very. There's a lot of personnel changes as well. It's it, exactly. It's not easy to keep track of all the players uh, as as time goes on. Yeah, and, and I, w- I wanted to track down as many of them as I could. So I think that's what I started off doing, really, is, is trying to track down the, the their kind of early band members and the people that hung around and getting a flavour of that scene. That's what I maybe spent possibly too long, but I spent a lot of time with that before I before I got a publishing deal, before I really started talking earnestly uh, with the band about the idea. Um, because, as I mentioned, you know, I was a metal fan and I got into Fate No More as a metal band, even though they're really not a metal band per se. And, no, they, they, yeah, I mean, they come out yeah. of that, especially the, yeah. the Jim Martin period, uh, for yeah, sure. They're, they're they, they've got that real edge of uh, uh, metal sound in, on the guitar side. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, they came, they didn't come, you know, they didn't emerge from that scene. Okay, they were from San Francisco. They were contemporaries almost of Metallica, but they weren't a part of the same scene at all as Metallica. You know, they were much more part of the kind of the late hardcore and the post-punk scene. And that was, that was kind of new to, new to me. Well, I knew the vague outlines of it. It was kind of, it was, it was fascinating to kind of, you know, really research that period and find out more about that period and how, how this kind of anti-hippie post-punk band, you know, how did they, how did they become, you know, how did they get, become cover stars in Kerrang, you know, and, and, and being played in Headbangers Ball. How did, how did that happen? You know, how did, what was the transition? You know, so, so well, there was a lot of, yeah, yeah, go ahead, yeah, sorry. yeah. Well, uh, okay. So let's, let, let's, let's get, uh, you know, the, uh, reader's digest, uh, uh, beginnings of the, the band. I, 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 they are from rock and roll archeology's hometown of San Francisco, which once had a thriving music scene that's, you know, yeah, priced out by tech bros and 
yeah. what have you. But uh, so take me back to the uh, halcyon days of 1979 and the youth of Mike Borden and Billy Gould. I think they're the two that kind of start this thing off, right? Yeah. Well, what's interesting about, about Bill Gould and, and, and before we get to Mike Borden, Bill Gould and, and Roddy Bottom is, you know, whereas the other big band that was into that uh, when it got into Fate More were, were were Guns N' Roses and you know you were based in LA as well and you know the story of LA in the late 70s and 80s was you know uh, people coming from all over America to make it in LA oh yeah well that's, that yeah, started in the mid 60s you know, uh, yeah. you know and uh, you know I, I, you know Summer of Love and all of that it wasn't just to make it in, in music it was just to escape the uh, doldrums of uh, you know pre uh, uh, Victorian age uh, America and uh, to find a, yeah. a new life of some form and yeah it starts with the hippies and of course you know yeah. that crashes and burns and you know turns into uh, something a little darker uh, yeah. and experimental in the 70s uh, and uh, by the get by the time you get to the uh, the end of the 70s you know uh, it's almost like throw your hands up and uh, you know let's just rage uh, yeah and yeah. you get that with the the punk scene uh, you know starting in New York out to London and then finally into LA and LA is a little little bit late when it when you get to the the punk scene and then exactly. up to, to northern california as well so so those guys uh, are you saying mike and billy came out of that yeah well well for me for me uh, you know as a, as a guy growing up in rural ireland the image the image i had of, of people coming to la was you know was was axel rose coming off the the bus and the welcome <laughs> to the jungle video oh, you know, yeah oh i met plenty, i met plenty of those folks yeah uh, and just you know i'd shake my head going Okay, so you're gonna be in a band, and that band. Do you have a car? You don't have a car. <laughs> this is L.A., man. You you got to get a car. So, yeah, there was a lot of that. Yeah, no, exactly. And and the, but the, the funny thing, and which almost sums up Peyton Moore going against the grain, was that you know uh, Bill Gould and and Roddy Bottom did you know they grew up in in Hollywood. They grew up in you know they grew up in oh, so well, the place. Yeah, they grew up in they grew up in Los Angeles. And they escaped from Los Angeles. They wanted to get away from the scene that they were that they were used to. You know, their their the fathers were both yeah yeah the fathers were both successful lawyers. So they were you know they came from quite an upper middle class background, uh, and and they were used to I think they were used to rubbing shoulders with you know Hollywood you know kids and thing, and 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 they were they were desperate to escape that actually and they wanted to go to San Francisco and you know and you know chase their musical dreams there and, and well I think Roddy was more into film studies at that time but they made the opposite trip than everyone else and and yeah and Bill Gould he no they he, weren't he, the only he, ones I mean famously you know uh, you know uh, Metallica uh, uh, most of the guys come from LA and they yeah. move up uh, to uh, to the Bay Area yeah, and I think maybe you know later on, I think there was a lot of freedom work, and it took a lot of advice from from Metallica because there were, you know, there was a lot of friendships there as well. Yeah, so, we'll, we'll talk about Cliff Burton here in a minute. Yeah, so yeah, so Bill, Bill, and and Roddy made it to made it to San Francisco, and uh, Bill went out. Uh, uh, you know, he, he was he was in a band already in LA called The Animated, uh, which were you know minorly successful. They played played some interesting gigs that I think supported the the future Bangles in, in one of their gigs. Um, Oh wow! All right. And uh, in LA, I think that yeah, they never got a record deal. I think actually Bill Gold went. I think at the age of seventeen or eighteen, he went to London by himself without really telling his parents to, uh, to try to get a try to get a record deal for the animated, which kind of testifies to how driven he was. You know, yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, I think sometimes when when people think of Fate No More, they think of maybe you know there were you know they they didn't chase 
commercial success, which it didn't. But they, they didn't uh, they didn't go out to sabotage it either. You know, there weren't some they were they weren't they weren't the replacements. You know, right. they were. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> yeah, they, they were quite happy. Good example. <laughs> yeah, they, they were quite happy. They were quite happy with with success when it came. You know, and as it came, but they were, uh, as Bill showed by going to going to you know London to seek a record deal when he was you know, he was he was managing the band when he was eighteen. The animated so. So they, they, yeah, they wanted, they wanted, they did want some level of commercial success, but they wanted it on their own terms. But anyway, but Bill, after he went, after he went to London, yeah, he came back. He moved to San Francisco to ostensibly study. Um, Roddy Bottom was also studying at the time as well. He was studying film studies, um, and Bill, um, he put up a notice uh, looking for uh, band members, and he, he eventually met uh, a, a band uh, and met Mike Borden, and him and Mike Borden and Bill Gold joined. Uh, a band that were then known as uh, Fate No Man, previously been known as Sharp Young Men, um, that had been uh, founded by uh, Mike Morris and Wade Worthington, and uh, they joined that band, and uh, Fate No Man was born um, in about uh, that, that period, 19, uh, autumn of 1981. So, uh, and, and Mike Borden, I believe, grew up with Cliff Burton, right? The tragic he did, yeah. San Francisco's yeah. monster of metal, uh, Metallica, and they and, and, and Cliff actually kind of helped the early band, right? He did, yeah. Well, he, he it was probably more later on that he that he well he helped him on. He pretty much introduced him to uh, to Jim Martin, um, um, but he also helped him with uh, with advice when they were looking for management management at various times. Maybe it was some advice that backfired, but it, it, it you know there was a there was a connection there. There was a I think there was a feeling for definitely with Mike Borden and later Jim Martin when they when they saw their friend Cliff Cliff Borden and you know people they they grew up with being so successful in Metallica there was something that, you know there was a feeling that this was something they could do as well and uh, yeah Mike and, and Cliff they they went to school together I think they were pretty pretty tight um, uh, did it you know when they were they were in, they were in uh, Cliff's bedroom together at one stage and uh, Cliff decided uh, I'm going to be a bass player and then. Uh, Mike Borden popped up while then I'll play drums and it was as simple as that of choosing your instruments and you know yeah. uh, it, it went from there and they were in you know one of the first bands I think it was definitely Mike's first band was a, was a band called uh, uh, Fry by Night it was supposed to be Fly by Night but there was a type of poster and it was the unlikely trio of Mike Borden Cliff Borden and uh, Eddie Chacon who uh, later had a real, it was a real one-hit wonder with uh, Charles and Eddie and uh, that, that their single uh, "Would I Lie to You." He was the, the three of them were, were were in a band for a short time as well. Wow! All right, so so to me, the identity of Faith No More is hard to pin down. Um, you know, there is a lot going on in the music as we kind of hit on already. So, and it's very hard to categorize in an era where, you know, that's a necessity to survive in the music business. So, what were some of the earliest influences to their music? The early, well, the early, yeah. Well, Borden, you know, uh, Jim Martin and, and, and Mike Borden were, you know, they had they had metal influences. They were, they, you know, they were into into Black Sabbath. But yeah. um, I think all of the band was uh, Chuck Mosey, who became their kind of their singer for the first two albums. It was like their six or seven vocalists to try it out. Um, you know, he he was into punk. He went to a lot of punk shows. So did, so did Bill Gold. Um, so, you know, there was a there was a lot there was a lot going on, and um, I think that they, they embraced the the hard the kind of the the group watching. Uh, they were kind of quite like the Flipper and, and other bands like that at, at that time, and the the kind of the borrow that confrontational thing of hardcore. 
and uh, and they always wanted that you know that heavy metallic guitar as well so they were able to put them together and then of course they had Roddy Bottom who, uh, who had you know, a variety of, uh, of influences uh, with the keyboard player and you know the, the keyboard they used on the first record and some of the first the first concert and some of the first record was was actually used to, you know as part of the to make part of the uh, flash dance uh, soundtrack so they, you know they're all sort of uh, a pop sensibility there so you know they throw it all together and that's that's what you, you know you come up with a, a very unique sound and it wasn't necessarily the case that each member of the band was different i think even in the, the band's early PR, uh, such as it was when they were on Mordom Records, which were the least a first record, or on Slash Records, the the, the famous punk uh, uh, label. Um, that that PR material kind of made them out as, as some sort of you know uh, alternative Spice Girls. You know there was you know there was a a, a metal metal fate them more and a pop fate them more and a punk fate them more. It wasn't necessarily that. They were actually you know. They, they all had varied interests themselves. You know, Mike Borden was into into Sabbath, but he, you know, was also into bebop deluxe. He was also into Roxy music. You know, so there was each each band member had a you know had quite a broad palette themselves. It wasn't just you know maybe with the exception of Jim Martin who would have quite a narrow focus on guitar music. The the rest of them were you know there was a lot of diverse influences, both uh, within the band as a whole and within each individual member. Yeah, unusual for for the time. I mean, nowadays, you know, I mean, with the advent of, you know, free music everywhere, uh, you know, I think most people's palettes have expanded because it's readily available. But but back then, you you, you kind of had to make decisions. You know, there's only so many dollars in your pocket to go and, you know, buy uh, the next uh, album, cassette, uh, CD, what have you. Uh, and so you kind of have to make choices. So to, to have a very wide palette um, is kind of an unusual thing at that time yeah and i think you know the, 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 they got into music very early they were going to the first concerts around 12 or 13 most of them you know mike borden chuck mosley bill gold you know and uh, there's a line in it you know for, for mike borden you know for him music was everything and for bill gold music was everything you know so they were you know uh, that was that was what brought them together and that's that's what they devoted all their time to and as you as you suggested earlier, you know uh, that probably wouldn't be possible in San Francisco now, but it was definitely possible then. You know, yeah. they were they were, they were living in, in in pretty much what were squats, uh, and they were rehearsing in uh, what were the old Ham's Brewery, which was a uh, you know we were actually rehearsing in the beer vats. They were they were used by by bands at that time to, to do the rehearsals. So it was a, you know it was a lot of free space for for bands to operate, and Cheap. you know they were. Yeah. Cheap, cheap, yeah, cheap and free, really. A lot of, and there were, and there was a lot of, there was a lot of interesting places, you know, where you could, where they could play gigs as well. You know, the, the Mabai Gardens and the, you know, uh, the, you know, famous punk club in, in in San Francisco. There was, you know, they could play Monday nights, Tuesday nights, get their foot in the door, and they were all quite, you know, they were all, some of them were ostensibly studying, but they were all, you know, they were all able to get by, um, you know, doing, you know kind of low paying jobs but you could do that in, in San Francisco in the 80s you know there was a yep. uh, there was possible it was possible to devote yourself to 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 art you know to music yeah. to culture you, you could actually make a living in San Francisco as a musician uh, not a great living but you could yeah. feed yourself and maybe pay yeah. rent uh you know there were enough clubs uh, to uh, and a variety of clubs to you know keep yourself busy uh, and not just 
not just uh, here in the city itself, but, you know, across the bay in uh, Oakland or Berkeley, uh, up in Marin a little bit, uh, you know, maybe even down to San Jose. It's, uh, you know, it's a pretty small you know, it's a it's a short drive to to all of these places, so you could you could actually you know uh, get somewhere, uh, uh, and uh, uh, which is a little bit harder to do in L.A. because everything was concentrated in, yeah. uh, in L.A. Uh, okay, so so the first significant era for the band revolves around Roddy Bottom, who on keys, who we talked a little bit about. So so yeah. I, I take it Mike Borden and Billy Gould start the band, and then Roddy Bottom comes in very quickly. Yeah, it's not actually that long because um, I think it's about maybe three or four months uh, afterwards. Um, Wade Boardington, um, who was the original keyboard player in Fate No Man, um, he he decided to uh, to quit the band for his for his own personal reasons. But um, Wade, being the kind of genuine nice guy he he is, he was and still is, he he still allowed the band to practice in his parents' garage. He and yeah. he, he 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 handed over to uh, he handed over. Uh, he played half a gig and then he he walked off stage and uh, Roddy Bottom took over uh, for the rest of the gig and became uh, became the the keyboard player and then not long after that um, the antipathy between Bill Gould and the lead singer and leader of Fate the Man uh, Mike Morris eventually boiled over and uh, rather than uh, sacking Mike Morris uh, the, the rest of the band actually resigned from Fate the Man and uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, leaving the singer all to his lonesome. Exactly. Uh, and then th- I think this is when the name change occurs, right? That's when the, that's when the name change occurred. Yeah, there was a, I think it happened at a college class in uh, uh, in, in Berkeley, and uh, it was a friend of the band, Will, Will Carpenter, who suggested Fake No More. Um, I think to Mike Borden, and uh, the name stuck. Um, the, so they, you know, they had, they had they had four band members and had a name and. They didn't, they didn't actually have a singer, but uh, eventually, eventually, after many, many trails, they yeah, we'll, did. We'll talk about that. So, uh, so the, of course, the next big uh, uh, piece to the puzzle is uh, Big Jim Martin. Yeah. So tell me how. Okay, so now we have Roddy Bottom. So the the, the band is Mike Mike Borden on drums, uh, Billy Gould on on bass, Roddy Bottom on keys, and now Big Jim on uh, on guitar. So tell me how those guys helped shape the band's sound of the early 80s yeah i think you know i think the fact that you know that the three founder members were, were you know if you look at the when, when they changed their name to fate fate no more the founder members were bottom gould and uh, and borden yeah and and you know they struggled to find a, a guitarist who, and, and, a, and a singer who, who fitted their sound so they weren't you know, the one like a traditional rock band, things revolve around the, you know, the, the songwriting duo of the lead singer and, and the, uh, the guitar player, first and foremost, because for a lot of their formative years, they didn't have a, a settled uh, singer or indeed a singer at all, or a settled guitarist or indeed a guitarist at all. So, you know, the, their sound emerged in these in these uh, in these sessions at, at the VATS in, uh, in San Francisco, in, the, in, the, in these converted beer VATS, where there was a kind of long more probably alcohol fuel sessions involving the three of them really playing kind of loop after loop and you know even today if even if you listen to Sol Invictus uh, their, their 2015 album you know you can see at the base of their sound there's still you know the tight uh, the three of them 
drum and bass with the kind of you know the the, the melody largely being driven by uh, by the keyboard rather than the, rather than the guitar and it it, it all it all goes back to you know 1983 84 when, when that sound was uh, manifested himself in those in those sessions yeah it, i i think that is a big separation with uh, with faith no more as opposed to some of the other bands that come out is the heavy keyboard sound uh, that you you get, and it, it it it's funny again. You know, listening back to some of these songs, it you would think it might come off as dated because a lot of keyboard sounds from the '80s are dated, but they but it doesn't. Yeah, from the, yeah, I think maybe maybe the production of you know the real thing might sound a little bit dated, and the maybe the, the thin production of the debut album We Curl Up might sound a little bit dated. But uh, yeah, you're right that the the keyboard. The keyboard sound itself doesn't, uh, you know, because I think Roddy was never, he was never relying on the technology or the, you know, the synths or the, you know, whatever, sound, plugging samples. sound at the time. Yeah, right. exactly. Right. You know, he, he liked technology and yeah. he liked to be ahead of it, but he wasn't a slave to it. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, he, he, I mean, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't doing the, you know, piano and organ sound either. These are some analog sounds that he's using here. Yeah, exactly. And you know, he, he was an accomplished player, Roddy. You know, he started playing. He started playing, taking classical lessons when he was five. You know, so he he grew up. In, you know, he, he he knew how to play the right way. And he, you know, he he deliberately probably played the, the wrong way, but he had he had his own sound. And it was a you know, it, it, Mike Borden makes it that that Roddy connected. You know, his his beats and. Uh, and uh, Bill Gould's rhythm, and, and then Roddy was the kind of the, the the B between that that A and C, you know, and uh, and and the sound started there, you know. A, a guitar was an added bonus, really, after that. Yeah, and that of course is Jim Martin, so he brings that real metal sound to uh, to the uh, the painting here, huh? Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, yeah, because Jim was. You, know, you have a lot of funk going on uh, in the in the early uh, the early years. Uh, you know, as you said, you know that that uh, the rhythm section of uh, yeah. of, uh, of Borden and Gould are 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 so so integrated and tight, uh, and and giving something you don't normally hear in hard rock uh, music. And now you just add on to it a, you know, um, you know, a, uh, a current guitar sound, uh, uh, at that point, wouldn't you say? Yeah. I think, you know, the, the, I think they're always looking for that sound. And they went they cycled through, uh, you know, six or seven guitar players before the, before the, the happened upon Jim Martin, which was odd because, you know, Jim Martin and, and, and Mike Borden had already played in a band called Easy Street, you know, back in the, in, in the in the seventies, because uh, um, they grew up together, um, they both knew Cliff Cliff Borden, as he mentioned. So, uh, and and that didn't end well between uh, there was a certain amount of uh, antipathy or even even animosity. stronger uh, animosity the, between 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 Borden and, and Martin that probably you know probably probably remained you know but throughout throughout Fate No More, but. Um, yeah, and and Jim was, you know, I think Roddy Bottom says in the book, and he he said it that you know the band were after a, a chunk, a chunk of sound, a particular sound, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I sometimes I get the feeling that it, you know, if if garage band that existed then, and you know, had I got a plug in to to produce that sound, they would have been quite happy to do that, you know. I think I think they were looking for a guitar sound more than a guitarist, uh, definitely this time anyway. Yeah. Um, but you know th that sound eventually arrived with with uh, with Jim Morton, you know, and. Uh, um, he was he was an you know he was he, he was also from the Bay Area but he was, he was from Oakland and in East Bay and he was 
he was more of a you know a classic rock uh, you know a, a metalhead with Mike Borden called a dirt head you know he was you know he he grew up on Sabbath but the first song he played was was Iron Man then he was playing you know <laughs> Pigs he, he liked him. Hendrix <laughs> yeah he, he liked he liked Hendrix he liked he liked yeah. Leonard Skinner he liked he liked Sabbath you know Sabbath was a thing for him so uh, um, and well Mike Borden moved on to play with a kind of more funky kind of almost an R&B band in front of Addicts um, um, uh, Jim Martin uh, started playing a band. Uh, Wait, in, in, didn't Mike? Didn't Mike Borden drum for Sabbath or Ozzy for a time? He did. Well, he did. Yeah. yeah later on. Yeah. yeah. Now that played a played 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 that played a part in 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 in, in the breakup of Fate and War in in, in uh, 1998. You know. Oh, well, we'll get to that. And, we'll get to that. Exactly. All right. So, but I believe before we get to the Chuck Mosley era, there's a slight detour with uh, Courtney Love who seems to show up in every 80s, uh, late 80s West Coast music story. Um, this is a story our diggers will want to know a little more about. So was was she the singer for like a two-year stint? It wasn't that long. No, it wasn't that long. It was longer, you know, it was longer than most well, people think. Yeah, it, yeah. Yeah, talk about most, that. Most people think it was only, you know, she was only in the band for, uh, for, for a matter of, you know, one or two gigs and she was, you know, because there's not there's no video footage or even not much audio footage uh, remains. Um, but she she was she was in the band for you know uh, about four or five months and uh, she kind of she played a she played an important role in the band finding themselves as a band I think with a focal point which they probably hadn't had before that uh, in the singer and uh, um, yeah she she was she was there for four or five months I think in in, in eighty four and. Um, she she actually uh, later um, after she joined the band she she had a romantic relationship with with uh, Roddy Bottom so uh, and they met to uh, Roddy did a, a mutual friend um, and she uh, she 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 saw the band in action at a, at a show in uh, at the Fiesta Club um, and there was a the band were trailing a, a very talented female singer Paula Fraser who went on to make some wonderful alt country albums. But um, she she kind of turned up and said, you know, uh, I can do better than that girl. Um, uh, give me a go. And uh, she was only 18 at the time, and she, uh, she, uh, she 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 was given the chance. You know, the band were were cycling through singers, so she got the chance in in February 1984. Why didn't she work out? Why didn't she work out? Um, she was dramatic. You probably don't be too surprised. You know, she was. Uh, <laughs> the band called her a bit of a, a drama queen. You know, uh, Bill Gould. You know, said you know she she was great. She was you know she was very engaging. She she was she, she was very great. Uh, you know, very exciting on stage, but she pissed a lot of people off. So I think I think common, that happened. Common thing. Common thing, uh, and I think uh, Mike Borden also. Uh, he 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 used more colourful language to uh, to describe it, but uh, it, it, you know, I think all the band were looking back at it now. Uh, they were they were they're probably more uh, complimentary than than they were at the time. You know, uh, she uh, Courtney Love said that the fact that the, the the band just didn't want to have a female singer, which I don't think was necessarily the case. Um, I think the the band were quite democratic. Actually, the, the probably one of the problems had. Throughout the careers, they were too democratic. They would they, they would put decisions to to the vote, you know, um, and they wouldn't agree on anything unless there was a majority. So I think, uh, and obviously she was not the type of person to be part of a democracy, you know, and she wanted to, she wanted to lead uh, explicitly, and uh, and 
uh, well, and for Bill Gola also, the band were the band were very you know anti anti rock, anti rock star. They were kind of they were they were more from the art rock school rather than the kind of you know traditional. Um, authentic American rock and, and having a you know a, a big rock star and I think I think that persona um, put, definitely put Bill Gould off um, and uh, and uh, yeah and I think the, uh, as some of the band members Mike Borden mentioned she, she you know she pissed, she wanted to piss people off and uh, the band got associated with that and so decided that it would uh, she it wasn't going to work out so uh, they replaced her with a, yet another singer um, for one show after that. So, all right. So, so how did Chuck Mosley finally get the vocalist position that gets them their first airplay? Yeah, Chuck, Chuck was in and out of the band, and it's probably it's probably uh, indicative of his time in the band that even uh, you know, no one's quite sure when he when he first played uh, with the band. Uh, he was in and out. He, he would play with them when they went up to LA, but then accordingly would play when they were in San Francisco. So. Uh, it was it was a little it was a little unclear, but Chuck was you know Chuck wasn't a singer, um, which probably people won't be that surprised to learn either. You know he was quite an accomplished keyboard player, which was probably more surprising. And he he he, he did play with Bill Gould in you know in 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 a, in a band in uh, in LA, so in the in, in the in the animated, and uh, he went on to he went on to to play in his own punk uh, outfit called Her Puts the Kill and. Uh, they were another band who struggled to find a regular singer, and so he he, he became the singer there. He first played, uh, he first sang with Fate No More in December '83, when they played in LA, and eventually, eventually in kind of September '84, uh, he became a, a permanent presence, uh, playing playing older gigs. Uh, then they get a little airplay with a cult song, "We Care a Lot," but I believe that is the second version um, that comes with the follow-up, uh, "Introduce Yourself," right? Yeah, the first version was recorded in, in, in 1985. I think the, the band would readily admit there was heavily influenced by Run DMC. Um, I think Roddy, Roddy says in the book that it, this was, you know, this, as we mentioned earlier, Freedom Order signature sound. And he said this was this was it. This was heavy drums, uh, punctuated bass, and floaty keyboards. And um, you know, the 1985 version was, was popular. It was kind of minor college radio hit. So yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, they felt it was a first real rock song, but. Um, you know, when the when the subsequently signed in 1987 to uh, Slash Records um, and re, uh, and recorded their second album, um, Slash as part of their their deal with Slash, Slash wanted to re-record uh, We Care a Lot and to make it a little bit more uh, appealing to uh, the DJs, the club DJs that that were uh, that were playing it. And uh, you know, the, the band actually didn't have any great objections. I think probably the 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 person who objected most was was Mike Borden because. Uh, um, they wanted to just to kind of instead of having the two snare hits that he had in the first record, they wanted yeah. to just make it w- one snare hit so it would be easier for club DJs to to uh, to cut and sample. And uh, you know the band took the opportunity to kind of update some lyrics as well. You know uh, they had the first version mentioned Madonna and Mr T, and then the second version is kind of like, uh, the second version uh, mentions Transformers and the you know the the, the Cabbage Patch Kids. So you know. The, the, so- so, yeah, some cultural references uh, change between the two versions. Yeah, uh, but the band were ready to do it, and they were, they were, you know, there was no, they didn't, they didn't resist in any way. They said, okay, this is something we do. We're not. They didn't have any artistic or objection to it. But that's really, we care a lot. It's the only kind of song that jumps out, uh, at, at least commercially, uh, in, 
with two albums and uh, uh, with uh, with Mosley uh, as the singer. And and at the same time, I think it it sounds like Mosley goes off the deep end. So, what happened there? Yeah, I think uh, you know Chuck. Chuck was never comfortable being being a singer in the band. I think that you know it had a beneficial effect that it contributed to his sound. Kind of he he's, he maintains he invented you know rap rock, which he you know he he might well have because he was he, he didn't really sometimes when he didn't understand the melody, uh, um, he would you know kind of chant and rant along, and it became it became kind of like a a, a rap. It wasn't necessarily what he intended to do, but um, he, and the band at that stage, you know, he wasn't integral to the to the songwriting uh, process he was in, he was based still based in LA they were down in San Francisco they would they would send him tapes sometimes the tapes got lost in the post but then you know he would he would, he would receive the tapes and record over them so he you know he was a bit out of the loop and you know he he had a habit in the studio of uh, of of picking up a sore throat or some sort of you know psychosomatic illness you know just as they were in the studio or just before a big gig so there was there was a you know there was a, there was an element that he wasn't as driven or as focused or as motivated or necessarily as confident as as the other members of the band and uh, eventually um, at the introduce yourself launch party at the club lingerie in in, in Los Angeles he, uh, he, he you know, he had a complete meltdown. He he went missing before the uh, he, he went missing before the the concert, and you know what's significant about this uh, that gig at, at Club Lingerie um, in 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 May 1987 was the the great and the good of the record industry. The U.S. record record industry was there. You know, the magazine editors from Rolling Stone, etc., MTV executives, uh, you know, radio station uh, bosses and pluggers were all there to see kind of you know this you know hyped a new band and uh you know yeah first of all first of all not chuck, first of all chuck went mi- missing and then next thing he uh you know he, he, fe- he actually physically fell asleep on stage and uh um you know as, my, as mike borden said you know uh it just, got, it just went from bad to worse it, it was a disaster you know and the, uh, bill Gould, you know he still he still refers to that concert he still feel it you know that 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 no show yeah. that the falling asleep on stage set the band back several years so but you know at the same time Fate No More were in 1987 and even 1980 were becoming quite popular in the, especially in the UK you know they were, they were on the cover of you know Sounds magazine and NME and you know uh, it was Chuck Mosey's face was on the cover of these magazines so you know he, he was the face of the band he, yeah. he was the image of the band so it wasn't it, in it retrospect easy. it wasn't an easy decision then yeah, in retrospect, you know, when you look back at Faith and More from the real thing here on, what you think about it was a, it was a faith complete. It was, you know, it was an easy decision, but it wasn't an easy decision for the for the band, for the management, for the record label, you know, to to effectively start from scratch, you know, and 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 try to find a new singer, you know, and 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 sack their singer. But they did. They they they. The, so now we get into the most important period for Faith and More, and that begins with the band grabbing the singer, Mr. Bungle, Mike Patton. So yeah. What, what what does Mike bring to the influences? Well, you know, my, I, I think I don't think I, said, I don't think it's an analogy I included in the book, but I remember I first put this question to Mike Borden. He said, you know, we were we were you know like in a kind of beat up old car going along quite well, you know, and 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 then suddenly we you know we were patching the the car up uh, you know every now and again, but finally we finally we replaced you know the car with a brand new engine and I was like, wow, you know, well, we can go anywhere from here. And that, yeah. that, that was how we described Mike Patton, you know, and again, you know, Mike Patton was a, 
an unproven, you know, singer at this time. Okay, Bungle, Mr. Bungle, you know, there's a few demo tapes out. The band had seen him perform with Mr. Bungle. Um, they'd first met uh, Patton when uh, Fate of More supported the uh, Red Chili Peppers in, in, in San Francisco. And, and Patton came down from Northern uh, California, from Eureka, kind of just behind the Redwood Court. And, yeah. uh, you know, he was only 19, 20 at the time. And he, you know, he, when when Chuck Mosey was 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 fired, um, they remembered him. They remembered his, his Mr. Bungle demo tape, and uh, they contacted him because really they were they were putting feelers out for various other for other people, and there were nothing was coming back. So, uh, and then he he came down to San Francisco. He he auditioned for the band in their uh, in their uh, rehearsal space, and uh, yeah, there, there were. They were they were convinced they weren't convinced straight away but uh, you know eventually they were uh, they, uh, they said this guy you know I think Mike Borden said um, you know he never seen he never heard anyone sound so powerful and uh, you know right in his face uh, as at that session so he was convinced other band members maybe took a little bit longer Jim Martin and Bill Gould eventually uh, uh, came around and uh, I think Bill Gould had reservations he, he just he compares uh, in the book he compares Mike Patton to Justin Bieber. Um, because he was so fresh faced, so callow, so you know, so so good looking, and it was like almost they were, you know, they, they were cheating a little bit by, you know, this scruffy, this scruffy kind of band of near the wells, um, and suddenly they had this kind of pinup guy who, who could sing anything. Uh, oh, tell that know. to the Doors. Yeah, well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> All right, so 1989, the the hair metal scenes dying a slow death, uh, a slow and painful death. Uh, we're still two years away from the death now with maybe Nevermind, but um, yeah. uh, the band breaks out with a hit song and a hugely popular video for Epic off the album, The Real Thing. Yeah. How, how unexpected was that for the guys? How unexpected was that? <laughs> Yeah, I think I think I think I think it was unexpected, and you have to remember there was almost a year between the release of uh, the real thing in '89 and and, you know, and Epic becoming a bona fide hit yeah. in the following in the following summer. So yeah, not too dissimilar from like the GNR uh, story, you know. The, exactly. The exactly. for Destruction was out for like a year before anybody yeah. really started to pay attention to it. You know? Exactly. And, and you about know, the same time, you know, and I, and maybe it is because you know it, it was so against the grain of what was going on and what was expected and you know that was definitely the era of the record companies all you know wanting whatever whatever the thing was everybody had to have a flavor of that thing and you know let's face it uh, you know faith no more is, does not fit in an easy category no it didn't and, and you know i think one of the trade papers um, at the time one of the uh, the record trade papers actually described epic as as radio poison, a mixture of of rap and metal as radio poison, and uh, it, it it almost proves that way. And uh, you know, I think the video the video was uh, was a big part of 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 that band, of that song breaking through. Okay, okay, the song was a great song, a dramatic song, but yeah. paired with that technicolor, highly dramatic, quirky kind of really odd video. Um, yeah, it, visually uh, stunning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, the record label did the record label the the record label saw the fate and more playing to big, bigger and bigger audiences in the UK, uh, in London particularly, and, and they, they, they rode in behind him then. Warner Brothers, uh, you know, Slash was a, was a part of Warner Brothers, so Warner Brothers themselves got behind the band and they pushed it. But even then, you know, they pushed it to MTV, they, they got in contact with MTV, but it took, it took a while. It still took, you know, as I said, it took a year for, for Epic to, to break through. It was a, it was a kind of a mixture of a good, uh, a good song, a great video, uh, record label, pushing it, um, 
and the MTV eventually getting behind it and, and people wanting it and you know and the band the band had toured non-stop you know they were supporting Metallica at that time uh, as well in, the, in late 88 um, so they were, they were willing to play almost every night to, to get this new audience and finally when the breakthrough came almost a year later they were kind of you know dead on the feet but, but the the record label put them out for another year of touring and promotion yeah yeah and, and they, they became you know a, a, an international band at that point so they, they have a winning formula. They are darlings of the new metal scene. Um, they're staples on MTV, Grammy nominations. And they decide to blow it up by getting even more experimental with the next record, Angel Dust, in 1992. Now, we are definitely in the grunge era at this point. Yeah. You know, so, you know, what was the thought process of, like, going, wow, you know, they, they could have made, you know, songs similar to Off the Real Thing as a follow-up and uh you know gotten even bigger yeah i think they probably could i think uh you know they were also a little bit of a victim of of, of timing and circumstances because um i think in the one year uh, one year they were off the road and so probably from 1991 to 1992 things as you said things blew up completely grunge blew up nirvana uh, specifically became hugely successful the you know how how the, even how the chart the U.S. charts were compiled changed. You know the the sound scan oh, era sound began, and 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 that that made a, that that you know that that brought you know alternative and and, and, and hip hop and other music kind of more into the mainstream, and I think uh, yeah, it's a whole thing. These are all influences that you find in uh, Faith No More's music. Yeah. Yeah, they're all there. And for me, the thought experiment is what if, you know, the band, what if the band, instead of going back out on the road in 1990 and 1991, had a, you know, recorded a follow-up album, then maybe they might have, you know, had had, had immediate success and greater success. Um, but, you know, because they, they released a live album, Live at Brixton Academy, and it, it was much more successful in, in the UK than the real thing had been because the, the fans were desperate to get Fate the More uh, material at, right. uh, you know, at, at late 1990, 1991. Maybe by the time 1992 came around, no matter what they would have put out um, after the grunge explosion of 1991 and even Metallica's own, you know, uh, uh, ascension to, you know, superstardom, um, yeah, there would have been maybe, album, right. yeah, there would have been a little bit behind the curve. But no matter, Fate and More were, were going to do the, the album they wanted to do, okay? They, they knew the record company wanted hits. I don't, uh, you know, uh, the one thing the fact they were, were, were gonna do, weren't going to do was going to do another real thing. They were determined not to do it. Every one of the band were determined not to do it. You know, uh, Mike Patton, he'd only written the lyrics for uh, the real thing. He came, he came in very late in the recording process. He, he wanted to be much more involved in the songwriting process from the scratch. Um, Bill Gould, you know, particularly um, he hated uh, the funk metal tag that Fate No More had uh, had been numbered with, you know, uh, alongside bands like, uh, you know, King's X, Dan Reed Network, The Chilies. Um, he said he was receiving, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, 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 of demo tapes from wannabe funk metal bands and he just absolutely detested both the, the, the term and the, and the music associated with it. Uh, the producer of, of, of Fate No More's... Uh, first uh, four albums so uh, Matt Wallace he he, he was aghast with when he heard uh, the real thing with the, with the production job he'd done he he, he thought he'd, he'd ruined the album and he wanted to he, he wanted to go for a much uh, richer denser maybe less less commercial sound and this is what it's what you know and, and uh, 
uh, Roddy Bottom had, uh, you know, as I mentioned, Roddy, Bo- Roddy Bottom was always, always uh, you know, in, into technology and and on this album, he, you know, he, he, he knew equipment, new synthesizers. He he really, you know, dug deep into, into using sampling and music concrete, and, and so he wanted. He was much more involved in the, in the songwriting um, as well. So the band, you know, for their own reasons, uh, not necessarily just to willfully make a different record, but for their own reasons, they were always going to evolve and, and, and they had a lot of confidence. They'd been out on the road almost for two years nonstop. So they were kind of, you know, they were, there was a certain amount of exhaustion there as well that that, that drove uh, Angel Dust and kind of uh, contributed to that kind of dark, kind of mordant, uh, misanthropic feel of the album. Well, I, I don't know. Listening back, it's, you know, it's obvious that Angel Dust was a, proves to be a pretty good move and it's, it's an extraordinary record and it does have a couple of singles I mean certainly nothing like Epic but you know Midlife Crisis A Small Victory and uh, most importantly uh, not metal but the Commodore's Easy uh, yeah I, I mean I, you know it, it, I, I can't I can't imagine them sitting there and and putting that song to tape I, I mean, to me, it's obvious. I mean, as soon as you listen to it, you go, of course, it works. It sounds great. Uh, but it's just so divergent from what they're after. Uh, it, it, it must have drove Warner Brothers crazy what to do with these guys. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think obviously, I think looking back, as you said, Midlife Crisis does stand out as a single. And, you know, uh, if just whatever, for whatever reason, it didn't really take off at the time, maybe because, you know, it came out of a quite a dark video, you know, a Kevin Kerslick uh, directed video, which featured kind of uh, a man being quartered uh, yeah. by, uh, by, uh, right. by runaway horses. So, it, it, you know, it wasn't, happy, happy. it wasn't quite a, yeah, it wasn't quite as colorful as In Your Face is epic. So it was quite a, quite a, quite a change. And as you mentioned, yeah, Easy, you know, Easy, Easy was a hit single, you know, it was a hit single. It was number one in Australia. It was the top top three in the yeah yeah internationally. In the UK. They, they, internationally. The other thing they they begin to gain more credibility outside of the U.S. Yeah. Uh, at that time, so would you call Angel Dust like the peak and uh, the most influential uh, for Faith No More? I would, I would, yeah, I would, I would, I would call it their their, their masterpiece, their their best work. I think uh, I know there are there's a there's a there's a dedicated. Uh, uh, camp within uh, the Faith and More fan community who are who are equally committed to uh, King for a Day, Food for a Lifetime, their 1985 album, and and some uh, significant minority, uh, you know, also attest to introduce yourself. But for me, and I think most observers, Angel Dust is where they reached, as you say, their creative peak, um, and you know, really went to a completely different level than than had been on on the real thing, um, and developed as as musicians, as songwriters, as you know, as composers. Yeah, so then, and then the next few years, uh, you know, like you said, uh, King for a Day, Fool for a Lifetime, Album of the Year, uh, and uh, I think Jim Martin leaves before those two albums are. Yeah. Uh, they go through a series of guitar players, and uh, and then after many rumors in 1998, they just depend. They they di- they disband. So, uh, could that have been avoided? Could the could the disbandment been avoided? I I don't think so. Um, could Jim Martin? Uh, leaving the band being avoided uh, again I don't think so I think you know it had been simmering for a long time and uh, you know as I mentioned at the outset the the, the three core members of the band that later joined by, by Mike Patton you know the, the guitar wasn't 
and, and never has been, you know, the most important uh, instrument and the guitarist and the most important band member. Yeah, uh, we uh, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, there's there's some comments from Mike Patton from old interviews where he is quite derogatory about the, you know, what, of guitar players in general. You know, you know, he says. You know, he he could play them on his little finger. Some of the, the you know the simple guitar parts that they need for the, you know, as him, Jim Martin probably got a lot of, of flack as well for his maybe, uh, for being maybe considered a bit, bit two dimensional and only thinking in terms of classic rock and metal and riffs. Whereas actually, I think it must have been quite frustrating for him uh, being in the band and and not being able to maybe take the lead in, in terms of songwriting. The band, the, the three original members of the band and and Mike Patton uh, joined in in this as well. Were you know they had a they had a they had a vision of what the Fate and War sound was, what their sound was, how the song should be written. And guitar didn't you know guitar was kind of. Uh, almost like a window dressing on top of the the rest of the sound. The architecture was already there. So I think, you know, it was going to happen eventually that he would get frustrated, that they would get frustrated with him from not delivering what they wanted, that he would not understand what they wanted. So so that was inevitable. And well, what about the rest of the guys? Uh, the rest of the, I think, you know, the rest of the guitar players, you know, Trace Bruins came in, there was a former uh, bandmate of Mike Patton's, uh, uh, Mr. Yeah, Mogul, a, child, a, a, childhood, a childhood friend of Mike Patton's and, you know, you know, he he says that you know Patton warned him not to join the band. You know, when he before he joined the band in the in in nineteen eighty five. You know, he he he, he played he played, he played some dazzling uh, guitar work and and on that album, that King for a Day album, and he he was centrally involved in songwriting. But he, he you know he he didn't want to be uh you know he didn't want to be a he wanted to be an integral part of the band and 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 given the equal rights as the rest of the band eventually, and that wasn't that wasn't going to be forthcoming. So, so he left, and uh, Dean meant there was, there was a, um, it was a good, uh, keyboard technician, Roddy Bottoms. He he joined for uh, as a touring guitarist after Trace Bruins left, and he that was always only going to be a temporary solution because he he didn't contribute to the songwriting. And then John Hudson came aboard for 1987. He'd been a long-term friend of of Bill Gould and other band members, and and uh, yeah, and and he he's still in the band. But um, as for your as for your greater question of what could the split be avoided in 1998. Um, Again, I don't think in 1998 it could have been avoided. I think the band all took their eye off the ball. I think Roddy Bottom admits that that they, you know they've been in the band so long. The other things uh, were, certainly were more exciting for them. You know, uh, Mike Borden was offered uh, uh, the touring role with uh, Ozzy Osbourne. You know, he, yep. he even a childhood uh, Black Sabbath fan, oh, he was you know, yeah, yeah. you know, if he, he had attested, you know, after difficult childhood, he attested Ozzy and Black Sabbath saved his life. So you know, he. He was always going to be tempted by that, and uh, as a transfer, he ended up playing almost as long uh, with Ozzy Osbourne. And he played from uh, what, 19, he played for almost 14, 15 years, almost as long as he did in in the first incarnation of Fate No More. So, you know, he was in it for the long term. Mike Patton had various projects that he that he wanted to uh, be involved with uh, Phantom Hour with the, with the band at the time, and so he he, he was looking elsewhere. So Roddy Bottom had had some. Quite uh, in about 1996, he'd, he'd success with the kind of indie indie pop band Imperial Teen, so he, he was moving on as well. So, I think the the yeah, and the band were less popular. You know, it's it's explained in the book, in kind of uh, in in detail why you know 
some of the reasons why they became radio poison in the US. You know, they, they kind of bit the, the hand that feeds with the with uh, US radio. Um, they became became more popular. The taste changed. Their look changed. They weren't as identifiable without Jim Martin. You know, they all uh, it. it they became a victim of, of fashion and circumstances and they were diminishing returns so uh, I think a, a split was inevitable Alright, so a 10 year hiatus uh, and most of the classic lineup, uh, just missing Jim Martin is back live uh, yeah. and then in 2015 they released their first album in almost 20 years how do you think they've held up? Yeah, I think you know, I think when when Fane working back um, I think most fans were, were happy just to see them playing live um, and see them, you know, reinvigorate the, the, the old favourite songs and, you know, uh, play European festivals, play big, get get some recognition by playing some big shows, you know, playing, you know, big, headlining major festivals in Europe and, and South America. And, and I think that fans were happy with that. And then there was maybe a bit of trepidation when, when when talk of new music came, when they first played the song Matador in 2011 live. That was a first inkling that there, w- that there would be working on new music. Um, but I think when Soul Invictus came out, when, you know, the the first single came out and then Superhero, I think the band said, you know, I think there was a feeling of relief, but also a feeling of exhilaration that, you know, this ba- band had still, you know, there, w- there was energy there, there was vitality there still, you know, they weren't, they weren't just in it for nostalgia, they, you know, they were, which knowing the band, they were never going to be, but there were, there was still a lot of creativity there and there were, you know, you know, I think, I think uh, a lot. Of, you know, most people will put Soul and Victus now in their top, you know, four or five or three or four um, Fate No More albums. You know, it it, it, it delivered. You know, it was it's a, the rare thing. You know, a very good uh, um, comeback album that that stands stands with the rest of their discography. Okay, so what's the latest news, ye old oracle of Fate No More? <laughs> yeah, the latest news. I kind of left that hanging at the end of the book because you know the band. Uh, but this time last year, the band did well. Then the, the three members of the, the three founder members of the band, Borden, uh, Bottom, and Gould, did spend some time uh, putting, um, uh, making some music together, or uh, in in the studio together in San Francisco. Um, and as far as I know, not a lot has happened since then. Um, uh, it's all again, very hush hush, huh? It's all very hushy. Yeah, the band, uh, you know, the band are. The band, individual band members are very busy. You know, yeah. Mike Patton has done a film score this year. He's, he's toured and recorded with uh, the with a, a hardcore outfit called Dead Cross. Uh, Brody Bottoms busy. He's, 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 he's been making music again with Imperial Teen. He starred in a uh, his first ever um, a movie role, a Chilean director, in a movie called Turtle. Um, Bill Gould is now, as we speak, he's uh, touring with MC5. The the reincarnated MC5 or MC50 the, with no, he, uh, Wayne Kramer. I just talked to Wayne Kramer a couple of yeah, weeks ago. Yeah, he, he, he's on tour Wayne Kramer and Kim Tehale and co. And he's a, that's a quite a big commitment, a three or four month commitment. Um, I think Mike Borden is also thinking and, and, and maybe making music with some, some other people as well. So I don't know. The question is that I don't know. I've, I've, spoke, I've spoken to some of the band members quite recently and... Um, if there is anything on the immediate horizon, I don't know about it, and I'm not sure even they know about it. But I still would not be surprised to see them doing something in 2019. 
Well, I, I, I think that if something uh, becomes official, you'll be uh, one of the first to know. All right, so last question. So after all this research and an active fan for so many years, the website, newfaithnomore.com, and now a 563-page uh, tome, what's the takeaway our diggers should know about Faith No More's place in the pantheon of rock and roll? Uh, that's a very good question. Yeah, I, You know, I think Faith No More, um, you know, for me, there was the, the, they're the, one of the most intriguing bands of, of the time, uh, musically and also uh, for their uh, their ability to evolve and adapt, and you know follow the music and you know almost go against their own instincts at time. Um, there's a quote from uh, Chris Novas, like in, in in the band in the book, where he, you, know, you know where he says that uh, Fate More paved the way for the likes of Nirvana and 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 you know. Um, and other alternative bands, and not necessarily musically, I think, but they, they, they had the attitude to, to show that you could be, you know, part of the mainstream and also, uh, uh, you know, remain true to your ideals, and that you know uh, it was possible to be um, to, to to make music on your own terms and 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 uh, and follow follow your muse and 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 stop when you knew you had to stop and you know restart when you knew you had to restart. So I think, you know. For me, the, the, the I don't think they're ever going to be in the classic rock uh, canon or the the pantheon, but you know there is a place for for artier, um, in, interesting bands in, in in rock history, and you know the, the, the over seven albums they have delivered, and I think in every album you'll find something different and something new to sustain you. Well, Adrian Hart, thanks so much for talking with us today on Deeper Digs in Rock. Thank you. Thanks a lot, uh, Christian. Thank you very much. Let us know. Uh, does Faith No More require a rethink? Should they be moved up the list of greatest and most influential rock and roll bands of all time? Should they be considered in the Hall of Fame? Uh, if that's still important, you please let us know. However you feel about it, be sure to pick up Adrian's excellent book that lays out a pretty good case. And you can find him at the FNM 2.0 website, newfaithnomore.com. Oh, and he's starting his very own podcast, continuing to dig even deeper into the band called Podcast Croissant. Thanks again to Adrian Hart, and please do pick up his new book, Small Victories, The True Story of Faith No More. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. So keep it easy while you keep up the rockin'. Pain. Girl, I'm leaving
taking you to my Seems to me, girl, you know I've done all I can. You see a big stall in the bar. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.